0: You're listening to History Man, the platform for historians, authors, and storytellers to reach the world, walk in the footsteps of heroes, and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we are fortunate to have Richard Davis, the curator of the U.S. Army Adjutant General Corps Museum on Fort Jackson. So, welcome, Richard. Thank you. Well, good to be here. Richard, we're, we're excited to hear about the uh, Adjutant General Corps Museum at Fort Jackson. And before we get started, uh, we'd like to give a shout out to our to a couple of our affiliates, Long Gone LLC specializes in genealogical research and guided historical tours in Camden, South Carolina, and Southern Campaign 1780, providing living history experiences that educate, entertain, and inspire. Both of these affiliates can be found on Facebook. So Richard, tell me a little bit about uh, what you do.
1: Like you said earlier, I'm the curator at the Adjutant General Corps Museum there on Fort Jackson, and our mission at the museum is branch oriented. And soldiers that are coming into the United States Army do their basic combat training at several places, including Fort Jackson, and those that are going into military occupational specialties within the Adjutant General Corps branch come to Fort Jackson or go to the Adjutant General School for that advanced training they have. And part of that training is the Army history and heritage of the branch and the Army itself, and the museum plays a vital role in that. They come over for a block of instruction. So all the
0: divisions of the U.S. Army and the U.S. military, uh, this is the
1: second oldest? Right. That's, that is correct. Infantry is the oldest with the appointment of George Washington and the first Adjutant general of the, Con, of the Continental Army, which is Horatio Gates. Uh, with that appointment, the Adjutant General Corps was born. So it dates back to June 16th, 1775, the second oldest.
0: Wow, so so Gates and Washington were kind of kind of almost side by side in their uh, responsibilities.
1: Yes, that's correct. After Congress authorized the the raising of the army on in, in June 14, seventy five, that they offered the appointment of commander in chief to Washington, which he accepted, and right after that, that they offered the position of adjutant general of the Continental Army to Horatio Gates.
0: What did Gates bring to the table at that time?
1: Gates was a former British officer that is served in the french and indian war or the seven years War, as a lot of people call it as did george washington but he had experience in organizing and serving in that capacity within the british army and and george washington knew that and so did members of the congress so he was like an obvious choice to come in and and organize this new force that was going to be unprecedented in forming
0: wow where does the adjutant general corps go from
1: there well of course like i said once again it was by the time this had happened in 1775, Lexington conquered and Bunker Hill had already happened. And the British were hemmed in and, uh, in Boston. They were surrounded by the militia, which is the you know the predecessor to today's Army National Guard. And they were surrounded, but they didn't know what, quite what to do next. So the Second Continental Congress met to authorize the creation of this army and the forming of it. Once Washington received it, accept the appointment and Horatio Gates did too. They wrote out to Cambridge to take charge of it. Washington needed to find war fighters and to release him to do that, then General Gates took care of the organizing part of it. And that meant like we had to take this mob that was out there and try to make them in some kind of a fighting force. Where did he start? Well, it started with the, the first job that, of course, he was the very first one, and like I said, it was unprecedented, but he used his experience with the British Army, which the American Army today, a lot of the things that they do and the traditions they have come from the British Army. And some of the names. The, the title Adjutant General does not mean a rank. That means a position. And the British Army has that today. So they naturally accepted that. And that's when he. They said, we need made to be the Adjutant General." So they appointed him, and that, he brought that experience: correspondence, orders, recruiting, things like that. And that's the, the four basic things. He didn't. They weren't responsible for pay. They weren't responsible for feeding. He was responsible for the personnel actions. How do we organize? Where do we get the troops? Those kind of things.
0: So how did he go about doing that? I mean, did he did he communicate with each uh, state or the representatives of each state? I mean,
1: like that know? that and also Washington. Like I said, once again, they had to sit down and start somewhere. So they talked about this on their ride out to Cambridge, really? and it, that was discussed between them. Well, well, and like I said, with letters and things, and also conversations that took place. Um, Gates and of course, once again, it was unprecedented. You were you were having an army that didn't have a soldier in it, and you know at the beginning. George Washington was serial number one. And then, of course, like and Horatio Gates was serial number two. And so they were talking as they got after, how are we going to do this? And you start picking leaders, then you organize them. And then that was part of the problem in the beginning, the organization of it until Valley Forge. They come out of Valley Forge, not the army that went in. And but it began, like I said, once again, it was a short time Gates was in there, but that he's planted the seeds that still are forming today, bearing fruit with some of the training.
0: It's interesting. Now we look at things through the eyeglasses of technology of this world, but we're talking Valley Forge, we're talking up north. How do you communicate with the colonies down south? How do you how do you get
1: the word out? That's some of the things I tell the troops that come in when they train, is I tell them, like I said, if you're in Massachusetts or if you're in New York where a lot of the actions were any of those northern the northern colonies, but the people down in Georgia, how do they know what's going on up there? There's no internet, no telephone, no you know, maybe newspaper broadside, some mail service, but that's it, most of the time, somebody's knocking on your door, it's gonna take over your house, is how you know the enemy's in your land or in your house or anything else. And, you know, that that's part of it, is it, it the communication, it's unbelievable how difficult that may have been.
0: Right. And Gates didn't stay as the adjutant general. In fact, there, no, no. there, was, there was several people that took his place, even through the American Revolution.
1: He happened to be the first, uh, he was in it for about 11 to 12 months, but uh, as he went back out to line command, because he had, the, he had obviously, you wanted your veterans regardless of, of any kind of reputation or anything else. They, they needed some people out in the field that kind of knew what they were doing, how to maneuver troops around. And so Washington put him back out in the field, and then I, and then someone got appointed in that position underneath it. Because the adjutant General at the time, if you want, in modern terms, that's, that is the Chief of Staff of the Army, not the chairman of it that General Milley is now. We're talking about the... the Chief of Staff for the United States Army. That position of Adjutant general kind of operated as an early version of that. Correspondence, making sure Washington's orders and things like that got out to the commanders. That's kind of what that position served. If you had promotions, if you had awards, you had all these things that the kids do now, and I say kids because they're a lot younger than I was when I joined in the Army today. But they make sure that, he made sure that those things got out to the field part, and the commanders had orders and things like that. It played a little bit different role today than the two-star general that's in the Pentagon today that's the adjutant general.
0: I have a tendency to go down rabbit holes, uh, Richard. So, okay. so if this is a rabbit hole we need to edit out, we'll just go ahead and do it. But, <laughs> okay, shoot. Uh, so the militia system of that time, they would talk about every able-bodied man that you know was in a community would have to come out, muster out for militia duty. Right. They would have a, a range of age, you know, fifteen to fifty-five or something like that. I'm not quite sure what the actual range is. I'm not sure if it changed depending on what region of the country you were in or what community you were in. But let's just do a general fifteen to fifty-five. Let's just okay. say that. Was there a range that the adjutant general, as they were making up the army, did they have a, a prescribed age range of people that could be that could come into the army at that time?
1: In the in the beginning of it, like I said, the militia groups had those age requirements. that they going all the way back to the to the very first one that was formed in Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1636, that was fighting the indigenous attacks that was going on at the time. They said, "Well, we've got to get some kind of a military force here." And going all the way back to that, well, they didn't have that many people down there. So really, I these I guess if you could pick up a weapon and and defend whatever. I don't think it age mattered a whole lot. But eventually, it got to be what was written into their different policies and all. This is the age range and they vary between towns and townships and provinces and all these different things that, that these different states at the time, or the colonies I should say, that they decided to be. Now when the, when the Army, the professional Army was authorized, like I said, after the, after the birthday, or June 14th, 1775, it's the Army's birthday. Like I said, when they were formed and that was gonna be the professional Army, a lot of people talked about the militia running from the battles and all that kind of stuff you know, because of their makeup and everything. Now, sometimes that's, that's not a valid, uh, I guess, a reason to say some of the things because the nature of it's different. Um, in the beginning, when the Army was formed, there, was no, it wasn't, there were no professional soldiers that was in the Army. Even Washington himself was a reserve officer within the British when he was serving during the French and Indian War. So there was not a professional army like the British. But back to what you said, the age range of it, I would dare say if you, could, if you wanted to fight, they'd put you in there because that's all they had to pick from. Later on in the war, when it become more standardized, I think that kind of went away with them. And they managed to say, well look. We're only going to take people between this age to this age, and once again, that's one of my weaknesses. My primary in military history, I like all of it, but like I said, I'm I'm learning myself more and more about the Revolutionary War and the makeup of the Continental Army. Very you know, good. but at the time, like I said, it's not you're you're not down a rabbit hole. It's just that's that's the nature of it in the beginning because that's who surrounded the British in Boston. That's who you had to pick from. Right. Right. So.
0: Alright, so we we move on from Gates, he goes to he goes to the line you say a line he, unit. He goes
1: back in the line unit and that's then that's when they move towards the victory at Saratoga. He was in command there. Much to the much to the chagrin of Benedict Arnold and some others I'm sure. You know, but also he was awarded a gold medal for that. Right, a, con- a congressional gold medal.
0: I think Benedict Arnold got slighted, and was it was that was one of the reasons why Benedict Arnold turned coat later on. A-
1: exactly, like I said I, I I can agree with that part of it and everything that Benedict Arnold it was was a war fighter and all the beginning with all of his problems, but he did have problems, and that tends to overshadow, you know, a lot of a lot of what went on later right. is because naturally, you know, that's how he was viewed. But he played a vital role in that Saratoga victory, you know, and I think sometimes with some accounts he wasn't given his due. Right, so gates goes goes to saratoga to right. a line unit right
0: who takes over his place as the adjutant general
1: now the 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 second person that got it was a temporary and i believe it there was another general and i and the name eludes me but the person he was in it but about two months the person that was appointed for that was during whenever washington took the continental army into camp at for, at valley forge on january 5th 1778 uh, uh, colonel alexander scammel s-c-a-m-m-e-l Elp is from New Hampshire. He was appointed the adjutant general of the Continental Army. as they was coming out, preparing to come out for the spring campaign out of Valley Forge. Okay. Yeah, and like I said, he he was from New Hampshire. He was in and he started out in one of the state units. But then when he come on to Washington's staff after everybody was there at you know and everything were getting organized.
0: If if he were to come on Washington's staff, it tends, there's a tendency for me to think that he had a little bit of credentials behind him. What's
1: sure, his family had money. And, just, and I mean, you know, matter of fact, it, it, some of his letters and things uh, that they, they write about their uniforms and all that, that they're trying to have made, uh, like I said, Washington obviously had plenty of money and his uniforms were, were expertly made and tailored to him and everything. Well, his staff looks a lot like him as far as their uniforms go. And matter of fact, uh, the adjutant general, his uniform, Scamwell's uniform looks identical in some of the drawings and paintings and stuff, look identical to Washington's except for then actually not wearing the stars of the general. But his the staff members reflected his uniform, and so he had money, and that tells, like you just said, that tells that he's got money, he's got means, he's got connections, and so, and naturally, you wouldn't just come in with some of the clout that he had to the rank of colonel, lieutenant colonel at first, but then colonel. That's that's a huge jump from people that are going from ensign or, or second lieutenant and all to that. So
0: Scammell so comes on board, and then what?
1: Scammell so comes on board, like I said, and, and takes over. Now, the Army at, the, at that particular time is coming out of Valley Forge. That's not the same Army that went in. You know, Von, Von, what do you mean by that? Well, Von Steuben arrives. I mean, when they come in after Germantown and all those – all those, I shouldn't say victories, those defeats, they come in there and they've taken a beating. The winter's hard on them, and enlistments are starting to run out. All those different things that even, even with the victory like at, at Trenton and all of that – this winter was hard on everybody, and going into camp, and you had people that, once again, that were, you know, thinking, rethinking why they were there, and all these different things. When soldier, even today, is starts thinking and have time on their hands, you know, it, it's all kinds of things could happen. And so Washington was having to deal with all that. The adjutant general part of it, with him coming in, was, von Steuben being there, they drilled and they become this better army when they come out, and him is the adjutant general, that fighting force was probably much easier to manage despite the difficulties at the time than it was when they went in.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: And so it come primarily from that. They there's even as hard as things were, as you know, that they things got better, you know, not at first, but they got better when that fighting force come out of Valley Forge. That's not the same army that went in.
0: I see. I see.
1: You know, the army and then in training and all that they tell that's a lot I've hear even in their not related to Adjutant General Corps history, but just in military training is like a lot of the tactics and all that come from the lessons learned even at valley forest today and that means how that's organized how you move how you survive all those things have been come from that experience as bad as it was
0: right okay so then then
1: what uh Scamble goes like i said he participates as the adjutant general through those different times all the way through till the the action shifts even in the south uh at that particular time he stays in that position until january 1st of 1781 but one of the things, though, that he was tasked with doing, uh, I said, once again, he was a warfighter combat veteran from the very beginning. He was at Saratoga, uh, once again, when, with uh, Gates in Command. But one of the significant things about him and is he was tasked by George Washington with the execution of John Andre. He was tasked with that. Now, that doesn't mean that he went up there and, and was like the executioner and did all that. But it was his tasker, as we say in the military today, that they, okay, this is what you're gonna do. You're in charge to make sure this happens. And he he went and made sure that happened. John Andre was executed, but it bothered him so much. And I don't think it was a position like he befriended him or something and while they were waiting, it was sometimes you are required to do as a soldier some things that you don't, not happy with doing and it can be downright dirty sometimes, but then again, it's your duty. And he did that. All right, but after it was over, he went to George Washington and requested transfer back into one of the line units as, as they were prepared to move back or prepared to move towards that final part in Virginia and all they, he requested to go back to a line and he did he went back and then because was there all the way through Yorktown
0: okay did, did he get wounded
1: he did he was wounded at Yorktown now there's some there's some confusion with that I'm still researching on this part and, and you get, there's accounts of it that some people say that Tarleton was one, the one that wounded him somewhere in the lead up to Yorktown. And all, and he didn't like I said he was severely wounded, and he died of those wounds. But a lot of the correspondence and a lot of what history has has said between the people that were there, and New Scammell personally they felt that that Alexander Hamilton's rise in prominence as a result of the Battle of Yorktown, and later on, that it would have been Scammell had he not died, because that's what opened the door for for uh, his appointment to be into the combat part of it with Alexander Hamilton and become the right hand person of George Washington. Because he was an aide-de-camp during that time. It's, it's what his role was all the way from all the way back to Trenton. But at the same time, they felt that that uh, it would have been scammel. That right. he would have been, he would have led, even on Redoubt 10, he would have he would have led the attack on that if he wouldn't have been wounded. But he got wounded early and then he died of those wounds later, unfortunately.
0: This says a lot about his uh, abilities to to say that he would have been the Alexander Hamilton,
1: absolutely right? absolutely and like I said there he had like you if you read some more about him he, he like a lot of people was he had a he had a love of his that was back up north and he was trying to get her hand in marriage and her father wouldn't be too agreeable on it and they're going back and forth and he's in these letters he's writing to her he's telling her about what's kind of what's going on and that's one of the letters leads to he' said, I had an unfortunate job or position or task today given by His Excellency, who everybody knows who they're talking about, and that was the John Andre execution. And he's telling her about it, but he was, try- he was trying to win her affection, and he visits her, and I'm sure that, you know, they were together a lot, but at the same time, they never married. And, uh, and then by the end of the war, uh, of course, he died, and, and then, you know, unfortunately, and they kind of went on. But, uh, but he's one of the more significant, less well-known uh, characters during, I shouldn't say character, but soldiers during the war, and all and his and you know the significance they play because just because you're not in the front leading the attack and all those things that happen the under untold stories all the way through these different wars even the more modern ones are finally coming out. So, so. did you get it
0: after doing the research on this and you've actually lived your life doing research on this right, this right. kind of thing uh, through the through your curator job? Did you get a sense as to why he was involved in the Revolutionary War side?
1: now we're talking about Scammell. Yeah. Scammell. yes well like i said he was from new jersey or i'm sorry new new hampshire and that whole area up there all of that i mean that new england part of it like i said with with uh with massachusetts and all that hotbed number, i think that part of he, everybody he was going to do something if he if he just had to be a private with no time in grade and out in the worst part of the worst fighting position he was going to do that I see. It, despite his status in society and everything else, he wasn't going to be, his, his love for country and the fact, once again, it's something I've argued even with my major professors and all down at down at, uh, at Florida State about certain things is people trying to rewrite why that people would join and their motivation for being in the very beginning like Lexington and Concord and all that. You know, a lot of times it takes a good shove to get you to do something, you know, and, and see with him, it could have been a certain event, I don't know for sure, but something may have triggered that. It may have, it could go all the way back to the, you know, to Christmas Attics, the first casualty, and all the way the British were doing these things. And, you know, once again, yet people just don't like being told what to do. And you got the colonists that are there, and like my, you know, like my my own ancestors, you, if you want to talk about Civil War stuff, buddy, I got something for you with that, how they were. But um, they were from also from Ulster in that way up, up that area, but still I think it's that it's that thing where you're used to having things done your way, and then all of a sudden you've got somebody changing all that, you know. And I mean, and when, and you've got all of a sudden you got a soldier in your house. Like, who is this guy? You know, they're posting these different things, and then all of a sudden you're getting your liberties encroached on for what you thought you had as Englishmen. Right. You know, and people are going to buck up and rebel. And up in the northeast, well, a lot of people think that they're liberal, and they are. You know, they still wasn't going to have any of that back then. And I mean, and that's that's where, that's the core thing of all this. People just don't want to get told what to do. It's not they couldn't pay taxes. they like, wait a minute, you're making me do this. Right. What do you mean? You know, right. and it just, you know, once again, they'll get your sugar and go dump it in the water. <laughs> so, but I think it's, I think it's a lot of motivation to it.
0: Well, give me uh give me your definition of liberty.
1: Oh gosh, my definition of liberty. I guess it goes back to really it's, it. The liberty that we have, and all, and it was it was from seventeen all the way back to Yorktown, the victory, and all that stuff, and it, that's very important, and all. But when I was in Afghanistan, my own self, I saw a lady before I left. She come and could not wait to show us her purple thumb because she had the opportunity to to uh, to vote. And you know that still that still rings with me, and that, that's you know we want to fight about voting, and this lady was just happy to go up there and put her thumb on a purple pad and and to verify her identity and get to cast her vote. And that was probably one of the most set-me-back-and-look things because it was in a foreign country. And we never think anything about that because it, it can get all controversial as it has been in the last few years and all this. She was just happy to do that. And up until that time, until we were there, they never had that opportunity because the Taliban would come and probably cut her hand off because she did vote, you know, and she was so happy about it, and that just, we went back and talked about that back in base camp, and I mean, that was just unbelievable. To me, seeing that, that makes you know what it means, and I mean, to me, you could, it's, it's not just outlining the Constitution, which it is, but, you know, when we get done here, I'm going to get in my car, and I'm going to drive back to my house. Well, some people don't even have a house. The government don't allow them to own a house. Their country they, they doesn't operate like this. The freedoms we have, you know, are not. That's that's my definition of it. If, if you can participate in society like that in a peaceful manner and, and and vote and do your thing, that's to me, that's liberty. Whatever you can do. Now, do you agree with everything? Maybe not. But at the same time, that liberty, to see that woman's face, that one act, and yet, we take that for granted so much. There's people to worry to death about they're going to mail something or whatever with a vote. She was happy to go up there and put her thumb on it. She was going around showing everybody. Wow. You know? Wow. And I mean, it's still, they would never wash their hands. They, they would do whatever, and they would go for weeks like that with that honor just because they were allowed to do that. And they're raising a society where you weren't allowed to do that, especially women.
0: Mm. Mm. You know,
1: this was a female that didn't have hardly any rights in that country, and it's the that, but she could vote.
0: Well, that resonates,
1: doesn't it? Sure does. And I mean, it it, uh, it affects me. And that's been back in 2003. That's one of the first things that I, t- I wrote Cherry about, or even my wife had t- and told her about on the phone. Uh, I mean, but they were, that was just, I mean, I'm, we get happy about a lot of things. But I mean, but that, just that, being able to do that, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: you know, I mean, being, like, well, they have to give you little stickers now when you vote and stuff. And that makes you proud, too. But at the same time, though, that was her their first thing. And I thought, to me, that's, if you could feel that way about everything you do in this country, it'd be what an awesome place to live. Mm-hmm. You know, but unfortunately a lot of things don't work like that because that's right. life. Right. But uh but yeah, that, that resonates with me what liberty is is seeing her face that day. Well let's plug your job one more time. Okay.
0: Give us a little bit of rundown of what they'll see when they go out to Fort Jackson.
1: Okay. Naturally COVID has played havoc with visitation there on post. Uh, my museum that I have shares a building inside Gate Two, is an old movie theater there on Fort Jackson, as a lot of people here are familiar with. Finance Corps Museum is in there, and then Adjutant General Corps is on the other side. I train between 250 to 350 soldiers a month, and it's, it's part of their history and heritage training. But the museum is also open to the public. If you can get on post, you can come to the museum. it open every day from, I'm usually there around eight o'clock, we close about four o'clock, and not open on the weekends, but I can also do by appointment at the museum if they would like to. Now the museum does span more than Revolutionary War history, obviously it goes back to the beginning, all the way up through today, you know, because that's that's the training that we do. But um, what they will see are they'll see exhibits with the Revolutionary War part all the way through Civil War, uh, Women's Army Corps history during World War II, uh, which is a rich history here with Shaw Air Base nearby and also the former Columbia Army Air Base that was, that was now the regional airport. Uh, we have artifacts from, from those soldiers that served there, including uh, some females and all. We're trying to do a better job of telling women's history in the Army and things like that. We'll talk about 9-11. Uh, because, like I said, the attack on the Pentagon hit right in where the Adjutant General Corps and the Finance Corps offices were located. They bore the brunt of the casualties at the Pentagon. Uh, matter of fact, Tim, uh, Tim Mott, who was Lieutenant General, was the Deputy, Command, Deputy Chief of Personnel. He was killed that day. Uh, and as a result of that attack, we got a lot of his stuff, uh, some sergeant majors and stuff that worked in office with him, and they tell that story. Uh, and then we do, uh, once again, I was honored by getting asked to be in the latest uh, Battle of Camden weekend out there on Education Day to promote the museum, and a uh, matter of fact, I was beside of you, and all, and I had a great time doing that. I got to tell, talk to to kids and all of all ages from K through 12, and tell them that story. It's not, and this is not to recruit them as far as coming into the army. It's to tell them what they'll see and our role in it. And even when I had pennies offered because the the new Lincoln penny, the most current one, has a shield on the back of it. Now it's not the Adjutant General shield that's insignia, but it's a shield nonetheless because that's a that's a a topographic, a federal topographic emblem has been used for 100 years mm-hmm. and all. And they was interested in that part of it. Uh, once again, I I do, I've, I've done a couple of tours in, in my dressing up like Alexander Scammell and present myself as that and taking the troops in. They get a huge kick out of that. That, you know, what's this guy doing and everything. And they, they do, they think that's awesome. And and I have a lot of fun doing it. There's there's one of my best, best things I do is mess with those privates because They're new to the Army. They're happy to be there. They want to be there. And they they have not been exposed yet to some of the other things that will go on. It's just life. And that's one of the greatest things ever. But like I said, we're open to the public and we have troops coming in and all that stuff. And we invite, if you can get on there, come see me. And my telephone number there is 803-751-1747. My name is Richard Davis. Like I said, or you can get on, if you get online, my email address there is posted on our, it's it's a small website that CMH, my higher headquarters is developing. So it may not be quite online yet, but they'll be able to contact me through that. And if there's a group and they want to do it by appointment, I can do that too. I'll, I can work anything, but I just need to know ahead of time. Very so.
0: good. Well, thank you for spending time with us today.
1: Sure. Thank you for asking me. All right.